Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. On today's show, we'll be picking the Wisdom Test Team of the 2000s, only taking into consideration performances from January the 1st, 2000 to December the 31st, 2009. Picking that 11, we have the fine trio of Wisdom Cricket Monthly Editor-in-Chief Phil Walker, Managing Editor of Wisdom.com Ben Gardner and the Editor-at-Large of Wisdom Cricket Monthly John Stern. Let's get straight into it. A few rules to start off with. As I mentioned at the top, only performances from January the 1st, 2000 to December 31st, 2009 are taken into consideration. You need to pick at least one player in the 11 who kept wicket in Test cricket in the 2000s. You do not need to pick a spinner. Equally, you may pick more than one spinner if you wish. You are picking this 11 for a hypothetical game that could take place anywhere in the world and you must pick a captain. So let's get cracking. John, who's your first choice opener? Uh, my first choice opener is Graham Smith, and he's also my captain. I just really feel that he he's just one of the toughest players. You know, his record in fourth innings, run chases, um, and, you know, he was leading leading a side that, um, you know, he turned South Africa into, you know, pretty much the best side in the world at the end of, at the end of that decade, winning in Australia. Um, so yeah, he, he's he was a pretty easy call for me. Um, yeah, aver- averages fifty six away from home, three fourth innings winning tons as well. Phil, do you have yeah. Graham Smith in your team? Uh, yes, yes, I do by a nose. Um, I've I've gone back and forth on my opening batsman, uh, and I've toyed with Saywag. I toyed um, very much with Andrew Strauss. Actually, I think. He was probably the the most likely Englishman in my eleven, uh, but he didn't quite make the cut. In the end, Smith for the for the big runs, I think, for the heavy duty runs, as as John outlines, really, and to take to take uh, South Africa to Australia at the end of the decade um, and get a result there, and obviously to take them to England in '08 uh, and get a result there as well. That innings, that famous innings at Edgbaston, of course, one of the great knocks of the decade. And the fact that he's the standout leader as well, you know, we'll come to other options for, for the leader, you know, and there might be one at first drop who captained Australia in, in many, many cricket matches. But I think Graham Smith is is far and away the most influential 
uh, figurehead of, of the decade. So, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not going to be rushing to the ground at 11 o'clock to, to go and watch him, but but he, he makes the cut for the the substance of what he achieved in that decade. Ben, if you look at raw numbers, Saywag and Hayden both average more than Smith over the course of the decade. Are you on board with, with picking Smith as your first choice opener? Uh, yeah, I am. Again, for me, it was it was really close. This was the opening slot was one of the hardest hardest decisions. I think the, the captaincy did swing it for me too. And you got to remember where South Africa were when he took over with the, the Cronje thing not that far behind the sort of the kind of embarrassment of 2003 World Cup, um, and then to where he took them at the end. Just I was I was reliving while researching for this pod the. Uh, uh, when he came out to bat with a, with a broken hand against Mitchell Johnson on a on a crack pitch, and just thinking like, how can you not pick this guy in a team if if, if you can basically? Uh, so yeah, that 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 was it. That I, I mean, uh, of the three, uh, Strauss is an interesting choice. I think I think there are there are three standouts of the openers for me, and I would have been happy with two only three. But yeah, Smith made my eleven too. Just going back to Strauss. Um... His his record as an opener in this period, obviously he made his debut, I think, in 04 um, and came into the side without an enormously persuasive first-class record for Middlesex. But he came into the side, opened the batting and obviously you know, ran away with chess cricket in those early years. From 04 to 06, 05, 06, uh, he, was, he was untouchable, really. He was a world-class opener for two years. Um, and his conversion rate, in this period is outstanding. 66 matches, 120 innings for 1700s. And if you think opening bats, the more hundreds they make, the more the more games teams win. And that sounds like a really trite thing to say, but you expect with opening batsmen to get a few early on, to get a few low scores. But when you get in, you've got to make it count and all of that. And Strauss's conversion rate is right up there. It's as good as pretty much anybody's in, in that list, aside from one... One man who, whose name we haven't mentioned yet, but I imagine he's probably in most people's teams. He's certainly in mine. Uh, and that is Hayden's. Hayden's conversion rate is outstanding. Hayden, Hayden made 100 in every six innings, not six matches, every six innings that he played across 96 games in this decade. So he makes, he makes my, my opening partnership alongside Smith. Yeah, it's quite interesting. When we were picking the team for, of the decade for the 2010s, there are a lot of people who were very, very good at either the beginning or the end of the decade. I think with this team, most of the candidates across from 1 to 11 genuinely were very good across the entirety of the decade. So if you're looking at their numbers, quite a lot of people have quite similar stats across the decade, but their peaks were quite different. So Hayden's peak is, is actually phenomenal. He averaged 67 for a four-year period at the start of the decade under Steve Waugh's captaincy. Um, John. Does Hayden get into your team or does Saywag pip him for you? Uh, yeah, I've, I've gone for Saywag. Um, I think probably there's, you know, there's a bit of um, Anglo-Australian prejudice here. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not a massive fan of Matthew Hayden, to be quite honest. Um, and uh, I, I mean, you know, he's so in, speaking without really, you know, interrogating the numbers for me, he's, I mean, he was a phenomenal player and his partnership with Langer was, you know, a massive part of that all-conquering Australian side. But it's just, it's, yeah, there's, there's something uh, aesthetically that doesn't, it doesn't do it for me. And I, I wanted, 
Saywag in the side and left hand, right hand. And Saywag's record against Australia and in Australia is exceptional. And I just, I, I you know, I t- took various criteria, looked at um, how how players did against the best teams of the time and obviously apart from you know the Australians themselves but if you were playing against Australia or in Australia or against South Africa um and Saywag um win wins in that in that case and also I mean just the just the way he batted didn't quite sort of reinvent opening batsmanship I mean Joao Saria probably lays claim to that more but it just the, the you know the, the way he the way he went about it and also the volume as well um I guess you'd say he's a streaky player to an extent, but you know the the th- triple hundreds as well. You know, no, you know, for, for for decades, despite the notion of you know Indian batsmanship, they're actually the actual volume or the sort of the you know the high watermark of of Indian batsmen was quite low, relatively speaking. And and Sawag, I think, changed that. Uh, so he's 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 my guy. Just just to quickly come in there, I tried my absolute utmost not to pick Matthew Hayden for a number of the reasons that John outlines. Uh, but I couldn't shake, I couldn't shake that sh- the, the sheer weight of numbers. Eight, eight, almost eight and a half thousand runs in the decade from 96 games. And, and just going back to that ratio. Now, I know that some of these innings would have been kind of so-called gimme hundreds in the third innings when Australia are just batting on to a declaration. I get that. And there, there are a few cheap runs out there, especially for that dominant Australian side. Um, but to, to convert as an opening batsman every six innings into 100 and to have 11 more hundreds across the decade than any other opening batsman, I mean, many, many good players would take 11 hundreds for their career. And Hayden's got 11 more than anyone else in this, in this lineup. So I, I am Denard. I've actually got some notes written down here and he was in and out of my team all morning. But in the end, I just couldn't avoid it. I couldn't avoid the, the numbers, really. So so he, he slips in. But what, what have you got, Ben? My guess, you've gone for Saywag. Yeah, I have done. It's it's partly, unfortunately, brokeyism that I just couldn't bring myself to pick what would have been five Australians in the end. Uh, but, but I mean, there is some logic behind it as well. You're, you're right that Matthew Hayden has the sort of the the raw numbers in terms of the hundreds and the runs. But for me, Saywag's best innings were probably well, were as, as good as like uh, as good as Smith and I think just slightly eclipsed Hayden's. And I mean, so just think about the 201, he got a goal carrying the bat and he got 60% of India's runs against Murley and uh, and Mendes, who no one could pick at that point. Uh, the, the, the 195 at the MCG, which are, those are two innings that would be up there with the best in, in anyone's uh Thing and I, I would maybe say better than anything Hayden put together. And so partly I think Hayden suffers because he didn't get the chance to play such great innings because when you're in a great team, you're, you're, you, just, you just get that chance less to sort of rescue your team and be the one man because like if Hayden fails, then Ponting comes in and gets 100, that sort of thing. Uh, and the other thing is that, um, I mean, I think John is right that, that so I didn't exactly reinvent the wheel with opening the batting, but here's that touch point when we talk about trying to find an attacking opener that you talk about trying to find your Saywag. And I think um, what's even more impressive, like he didn't really change the game because no one else has really been able to replicate it like him with the exception of, of David Warner. He's uh, Everyone's looking for that player who's like Saywag who can come in and do that at the top of the order in Test cricket. And yeah. with one exception, like no one's been able to since. And he st- yeah. and still that effect c- 
continues to be had and it influences the likes of Trevor Bayless like esteemed cricket minds because it's just such a, a captivating idea and he's one of the few that's been able to do it, I guess. The Warner comparison is quite interesting um, in that we picked Warner for the 2010s team despite his mediocre best record in certain countries. Sewag is similar to a degree. He averaged 20 in New Zealand, 26 in South Africa. Um, Hayden doesn't quite fall... Uh, his record around the world doesn't fall quite as much as Sewag. Um, John, does that put you off at all, the Sewag selection? No, because, as I say, my, I think, you know, to, to have done it in, in Australia and against Australia and, and, you know, there's other innings that Ben mentioned. So, no, not not really <laughs> just just come in on that it's it's kind of six to one half a dozen really Saywag averaged 60 against Australia um and Ben outlined those innings in Australia he averaged just 27 in England Hayden averages over 50 in India uh made a brilliant 100 in that that famous series of course right at the start of the decade but then just 30 odd I think 34 from memory yeah, not you know, having had a look earlier today in England. And obviously Hayden had that poor 05 series until the Oval. So, yeah, I think you can make a case for either of them in terms of big runs away from home in, in so-called alien conditions. Um, Matthew Hayden's never going to be a hill that I'm going to be prepared to die on, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if Brenda Sewag gets the nod uh, for you two East London hipsters out there, then I'm absolutely fine with that. <laughs> Wonderful. So we've, we've, got a, we've got an opening pair. Graham Smith and Verenda Sewag. Uh, now the middle order. Ponting, Callis, Jai Warner, Dravid, Sangakara, Tendulkar, Yusuf, Lara, Chandapol, Lakshman, Inzaman, Peterson, Hussey, War. The list goes on. You can only pick four of them. Phil, who's your number one? Well, at three, I've gone with Panther. I've gone with Ricky Ponting. Um, th- this would have been more fun if we'd uh, not been allowed to pick Australians, I think. <laughs> uh, but- yeah, it, our parochialism only goes so far. Uh, and yeah, I can't avoid Ponting at three. Um, Ponting to me was the batsman of that decade. Uh, and while he he had that, that famously bad trot against England in the 10-11 series, he missed, you know, he's, he's a year too late for that one. Um, across this period of time, I just think he was the complete player, really. Uh, and so Ponting at three, to not pick Ponting at three uh, w- would look to be kind of extremely um, contrarian and back to front, I think. Um, over to you, Ben. <laughs> well, I think obviously I've got Ponting in my team. The question of the batting order is a more complicated one because you have a lot of, not a lot, a lot of those players, would not just very good middle order batsmen, but very good first drop batsmen in particular. And you might, when you're coming to the composition of the side, decide that you want your strike, wanting slightly more of a strike player. What, what surprised me with a lot of these players going through actually was just how high a lot of their strike rates were throughout the decade. Like we talked about Saywag, obviously, but both uh, Hayden and Smith were striking at over 60 runs, 100 balls in the decade, as was Ponting. Stop you there, Ben. Are you proposing that Ricky Ponting's in your team and he doesn't bat three? Is, well, is this I'm... what you're getting to here? <laughs> It, it, it depends what, what sort of team you want to put together. Uh, the politician's answer, in your 11, is Ricky Ponting at three or not three? Okay, R- Ricky Ponting is, is not at number three in my 11. Outstanding. Yeah. Wow. John, John, step in, please. 
Yeah, he's 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 not at three in my eleven either. Oh my word! What's happening here? What? What? Explain. Tell me why. The definitive number three of the modern era is not batting at three in either of your teams. Well, I think Ben, you know, ex- expressed it well that there are other candidates to bat at three, and I'm not quite sure why you're so obsessed with with the number three position. I mean, there was a, you know, when I was growing up, which is further ago than any of you lot, the number four position, certainly for English batsmen, was considered the, you know, the play, that, that was your, where the Rolls-Royce player batted, like Gower or whatever. I remember Gower batted at three plenty as well. Um, now, I know it varies from country to country and conditions, blah, blah, blah. And you're right. I mean, Ponting, outstanding number three. But the idea that he sort of has to bat number three and, in, you know, I, I don't, I think number four is a perfectly acceptable place for Ricky Ponting to bat. Yeah, and if I can jump in, I think in this team in particular, if we're going with Saywag opening the batting, uh, if he slashes at one and nicks it to first slip, first ball, then you want your player coming out to be able to be that that makeshift opener rather than the as Ricky Ponting had the luxury of coming in when Langer and Hayden have scored, you know, a hundred at four and over and the and the bowler's already a bit tired. Um, which is which is why my number three was Raul Javid, who could easily have been a candidate for an opener if he had opened in this team. Right, okay. Okay, fine. Fine, that's me told. Um, so is Dravid in a with you, John, as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, he. I, 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 it's very easy to get, to just look solely at statistics with something like this. And I, so I kind of, I've, I've gone with, you know, my gut a bit as well. And I just, I just love Rahul Dravid, basically. And, um, but he's, He's the leading batsman away from home in this in this decade, I believe, according to my research. Best part of five thousand runs at fifty six. You know, never mind all the other sort of all these other numbers, but yeah, I mean that's that's good enough for me. And and I think the thing is, as Ben's alluded to, that if you want him in the team, then you want him at three. You don't want him in, in another position with Ponting at three. That would be weird. So yeah, he, he was, um, but. For, Ponting and Dravid were my kind of with the, my first two middle order names on on my team sheet. Phil, you didn't pick Dravid. Why? Because I picked Ponting. And you don't think that either of them could can move? No, no, I, I, they can, but you know it's an embarrassment of riches, isn't it? I picked Sangakara at four. We'll get to we'll get to Sangakara later. Um, there was one other middle order batsman that you all picked, and that was Jack Callis. Ben was 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 Callis for you a no brainer as well. Yeah, uh, you hesitate to call him a, a defining cricketer of the decade, but he was a preeminent one, certainly, in that he scored as many runs as anyone and also took well, about 200 test wickets. Uh, yeah, an, an absolute no-brainer just, just through sheer weight of numbers, even if it's hard to remember a shot he played or a ball he bowled in test cricket in that time. Do you think that should matter, though, Phil? Uh, if we have so many iconic players of the modern era and there's very little to distinguish between them, is is Callis's bowling basically what gets him in the team and and gives him the nod over the the long list of great middle order batsmen from his era? Um, in this team that I've picked, I've picked two yeah. spinners, two seamers, and Callis. And Callis enables me to pick that 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 team. I think if if Callis couldn't bowl, then I don't think he he he, he creeps in. I don't know. He certainly wouldn't creep into my side. Um, his he, as a batsman, obviously a stunning technician, but a kind of a bloodless sort of player to watch. Um, but the complete cricketer, and 
in in a second slip as well. It was it was nobody nobody better than than Jack Callis across that era, and and a cricketer's cricketer, one who has been said. I remember Peterson and Trot. They described him as the best cricket they'd ever seen, and uh, you know within the game. He didn't put bums on seats, Jack Callis, but he was revered and admired within the game enormously for what he did. Um, and so if you are looking to balance this side up, uh, I don't think you can avoid Callis, really. I guess when you look at his look at his run of scores, he possibly went missing in the really big series here and there. Um, he was oddly out of form in the 9 series against Australia. Um, but... I think overall, again, those numbers, those numbers across the board. I think it was two hundred and twenty odd wickets he took, something like that, in this in this era as well. Over eight thousand runs, over eight and a half thousand runs. Um, so yeah, I just don't think you can look past Jack Callis. Uh, he slips in, although he slips in a little bit lower down the order for me here. Uh, but that's you know that's by the by, really. So it seems like we've agreed on three of the middle order: four Ponting, Dravid, and um, Callis. Phil, given that you didn't pick Dravid, your your other two middle order men were Sangakara and Yusuf. If you were to pick one of those two, who would you pick? Well, I'd probably go with Sangakara, partly because he's left-handed, partly because I'm a little bit in love with him, partly because he's beautiful, uh, partly because he made 2100s in 80 odd games in that in this era. The the 192 he made at Hobart, um, I happened to be awake watching that, so I watched it all, uh, and it's up there with my top few favourite innings that I've ever seen. He almost won that game. They almost chased down, I say almost, they were 60 or 70 short in the end, but they almost chased down 480 or something like that, pretty much on the back of, of this one-man show. <coughs> Excuse me. From Sangakara against a crack Australian side. So Sanga slips in there um, as one of my non-negotiables. Mo Yusuf, we can argue the toss with Mo Yusuf, but I'm interested in the conversion rates uh, of these players. And Mo, Yusuf, Mo Yusuf's hundreds to matches ratio is the best of the lot, better than than anybody. The one, the one mark maybe against him is that he was lethal. I mean, extraordinarily lethal across one calendar year. But maybe his record, outstanding as it is, doesn't spread quite so smoothly across the whole ten year period. So. I can absolutely understand why others would choose choose other players. Uh, but for me, Mo Yusuf is a great stylist and a player who delivered time after time. 2300s in 70, 71 games. Uh, he gets my nod at number five with Sangakara at number four. Oh, 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 yeah, I mean, I agree with almost everything you said there. Do you think that it should be taken into consideration that Sangakara played quite a high proportion of his test against Bangladesh and Zimbabwe the two weakest teams across that decade. He played 11 tests against Bangladesh and averaged 73 and five more against Zimbabwe and averaged 89. But yeah, do you think that should be taken into account at all? Um, possibly. And yet Sangakara was a great player before the start of this decade and was a great player after this decade as well. And I think if you play 150-odd test matches, whatever he played, then I think these kinds of things probably even themselves out. And if we are going to go down that road, which is a fair fair line of inquiry, then other subcontinental players slip into that, that bracket as well. Um, uh, it's, you know, it's easier to score runs, certainly in the first two or three days of a test match in the subcontinent than it is elsewhere in, in the world. So, 
yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put that against Sangakara really. And as I say, I mean, he made great runs in Australia. He made good runs in in, in England as well. He's he's got runs everywhere he's gone. Really massive runs against South Africa. Great record against South Africa. So yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't dwell too much on that personally. Yeah, I didn't really think of Sangakara initially, partly because I associate his peak coming in the decade he'd just gone in the two thousands towards the end of his career. Um, John, who's the who's the middle order batsman you'd like to put forward for selection? Uh, well, I picked Tendulkar actually. Um, after much uh, agonising, and, and Yusuf was very much on my list. Worth worth remembering as a complete note of trivia that he was actually called Yusuf Johanna when this decade began, uh, which I'd forgotten about as I was looking through Wisdoms earlier on. Um, yeah, I, I, I'd be. I'd be very happy to include him. I mean, that that series he had in England in 06, where he was outstanding, and I guess that's the calendar year that you're talking about, Phil. Um, uh, I, I guess, and this sounds a bit narky, but I was sort of looking for reasons not to include Tendulkar, and then I, I was, you know, looking at a number of other people, Peterson, Jar Wardner, Yusuf, and then, um, and then I thought, well, I suppose I should look at Tendulkar's numbers and see how they stack up and, in the end, I, I went for a sort of boring, boring choice, I suppose. Um, but again, it's just sort of a, a consistency. And I know we, we, you know, get into the whole thing about games affected and, and you know, match winning performances or whatever. But I mean, he did score runs against pretty much everybody and and scored, you know, runs in against Australia in Australia. Um, so, yeah, in the end, I went for Tendulkar. It's just sort of. I don't know that that overarching longevity slash brilliance class etc. Yeah, he was a good player. <laughs> Definitely a good player. Yeah, yeah, look, it's very very difficult to argue against any of that. And and John makes notice of the innings that he played in Australia that that famous two hundred and forty odd at Sydney where he just didn't play a cover drive. Yeah, and again, how do you see past somebody like like Sachin Tendulkar? Um, I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to argue argue the toss on that one. Really, Lara's interesting. We haven't really mentioned him. I think the sense was, if this had been 1999 to when he retired in in 06, including that series against Australia, then I think he'd have crept into my side. But I think those final six years of his, of Lara's career, with the 400, obviously swamping, dwarfing everything else. My my feeling is that Lara's best days were maybe slightly past him by that point. Although he averaged fifty four over sixty six games, so he, he was still in decent nick. And also, just two not outs as well. Like if you look at the list of the leading run scorers in that decade, uh, a lot of the people we've mentioned and are including this team, uh, their their averages are popped up by a significant number of not outs. And Lara just has two, which is quite interesting. Yeah. Um, but also, again. Given that there are so many people who were excellent for the entirety of the decade, uh, I think it is natural for us to count the fact that Laura only played sixty percent of the decade uh, against him, seventy percent actually. But yeah, the difficult one. Ben, who who who's your middle order um, man? So I went for for Mahela Jai Wardner. Um, I suppose a lot of the criticisms that Phil uh, levelled against Sangakara could be levelled against Jai Wardner, and perhaps more so given that he played sixteen tests against. Bangladesh and Zimbabwe but to counter that he got hundreds in nine countries in the decade and then a 98 in South Africa uh, and played some of the again some of the decade's best knocks in my opinion I mean the 
that that series against South Africa in Sri Lanka, which was the last away series South Africa would lose for about ten years, was basically Jai Warden in series. He got the three seven four in the first game, having come in at sixteen for two or something, and then in the next game eclipsed it with one hundred and twenty three in the in the fourth innings when they won by when they won by one wicket. Um, I also sort of included him as a kind of captaincy fail safe in my team because if Smith wasn't going to open the batting, he would be my second choice as captain for this team. Because uh, I just think he had a, a, a brilliant cricket brain, basically. But yeah, I, th- I think his, his record actually holds up reasonably well across the board, across all countries. And there's kind of just a, a weight of runs there as well in terms of big scores, lots of hundreds, uh, good conversion rate. He kind of just seemed to fit the whole package for me. So... Um... Has anyone been persuaded by anyone else's argument so far? Well, as, as I'm the only one who didn't pick Raul Dravid, and I understand what what an alluring cricketer he is, I'm I'm more than happy to step away from from the Mo Yusuf argument or even the Sangakara argument. I'm I'm not fussy really. Um, I'm just yeah. So so if Dravid slips in there, that's absolutely fine with me. You know, his, his record's obviously outrageous. Um, uh, I'm slightly interested by by the number of hundreds, maybe that Dravid delivered. You know, twenty hundreds from ninety six games. It's a it's a really good ratio, but it's not comparable, say, to Jaya Wardner, and it's certainly not comparable to Ponting, or indeed Callis. Um, his conversion rate is, yeah, best part of five, just a tick under five, whereas the others are nearer to to four, and Ponting's is nearer to three. Um, but for for the all round package, Dravid, and for the you know the grace and the class of the man, the debonair element to, to the Dravid story, I'm happy with. It. How do you see it, John? Uh, well, I, obviously, I picked Dravid, um, and I did, as I said, I did want to pick Yusuf. So the fact that you had him, I, I'd be, I'd be willing to, you know. Okay, so he was in your eleven, Yusuf, was he? No, no, he's not. No, he's not. I'm just saying that I, I you know, was keen, but. It, is is the discussion about whether Dravid, yeah, makes the final cut? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I Dravid's Dravid's in for me. But so who's going to be the fourth man in that middle order? Uh, you've you've all put forward different people. Ben, are you persuaded by either Yusuf or or Tendulkar? Well, I, I was actually more convinced by by Sangakara out of all of them, okay. unfortunately. Uh, yeah, he he. As of the cases put forward, that's that's the most compelling for me. The, the especially the one nine two in in Hobart is a, a a very compelling case in and of itself. Basically, especially because he shouldn't have been given out. Uh, and mm. really, yeah. Kurtzman apologised to him afterwards for for triggering one one that could have been one, one of the great one of the great knocks or well, one of the great chases. I mean, um, so yeah, Sangakara, I would would be my second choice out of out of the names suggested so far. Okay, so so we have Ponting, Dravid, Sangakara, and Jack Carlis in our four. Is that right? Are we tell unless, unless John objects to to Sangakara's selection. No, I mean I, I think you know Phil Phil said he was in love with Sangakara, and I, well, I wouldn't perhaps quite go that far. It's I you know certainly like to take him out for dinner, you know. <laughs> oh, it's just interesting. This as an aside. Um, we spoke about Strauss early on. We haven't even mentioned an Englishman, have we here for a for a middle order berth? Well, KP, I, I had KP. I, I was quite interested in KP, um, but partly the, uh, you know, a bit like with Lara and, and one or two others that, you know, he makes his debut in 05. so it's, you know, half the decade, isn't it? Um, but um, 
yeah, I mean, he, he would he would certainly be a candidate. Good luck to Graham Smith trying to keep him in line. But <laughs> yeah, highest highest uh, average from an English middle order player in the period. Graham Thorpe, fifty three yeah, and yeah. a bit. Yeah, comfortably the best average. Um, Peterson a tick under fifty. Uh, and and yeah, Thorpe, yeah, from forty three games, average fifty three and a bit. Obviously, I'm not talking about him slipping into this side or anything, but. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that that if you can kind of tack on the early part of Thorpe to the latter part of Peterson across the, the, the decade, then you'd have one hell of a player. Um, Peterson's, I guess, his story, if you were to extend it by two years to take it into 2011, and then he has that defining Australia away series as well under his belt, then I think his case becomes very strong indeed. Uh, but yeah, 05 to 09... Averaging 49 and a bit, 1,600s from 56 games is, is a very, very good conversion rate, but maybe not quite the complete uh, body of work that we need for this this task. So Peterson doesn't quite make the cut. Yeah, and, and there, there are great players we've not mentioned at all. Chan Nepal averaged over over 50. Inzamam averaged 55 in the decade as well, but... Yeah, it's quite hard fitting these guys in. Lachman scored one of the one of, if not the greatest innings of the decade. He's not even in consideration. Um, but it seems like we're we're in agreement with our four. The next one is a is a player that predictably you all picked, Adam Gilchrist as as the wicketkeeper. Ben, did you even come close to considering anyone else for this spot? Uh, no, I didn't. I think uh, as as much as Phil said, it would be a. Uh hugely contrarian to move away from ponting it through. I think this <laughs> there's there's no way you could not consider or not immediately just go to Adam Gilchrist for this team. Uh, a player who probably did uh, redefine his role, I'd say. And, and he, 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 did, he did it everywhere, did it in a way that no one else uh, had before. Uh, and he, in a way, made that Australian side, just took them to that, to that next level, really, I think, uh, from being... Uh, the dominant side of their time being one of the best sides of all time. Um, so yeah, no, no, no looking past uh, Adam Gilchrist for me. Phil, in terms of the game, in in terms of uh, the way the game changed over the two thousands, do you think there was a more influential cricketer than Adam Gilchrist? Uh, no, no, and the the numbers are staggering, uh, but the numbers are obviously only one one part of the story. Came in, in, in into that side in ninety nine, and it was already pretty dominant. Uh, probably the last thing they needed was a was a freak phenomenon at number seven, um, but they 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 went and found one anyway. Um, and he made that hundred against Pakistan in his second game to win a game chasing three hundred and plenty on the final day, and never stopped from there on. Really, um, his numbers are hilarious compared to the rest. And there's been some good keeper batsmen in this era. Boucher played over a hundred mount- matches, made over four thousand runs. But Gilchrist's figures, comparative to other keeper batsmen, are jokes, really. 1,600s from number seven. 1,600s from number seven. Over 5,000 runs. And a very, very good keeper as well. He was maybe not quite as silky as, as, as his predecessor, Healy, but, but a very, very good keeper, especially standing back. Uh, and a decent bloke as well. It kind of humanised that Australian side quite effectively, I thought, in that era. John, how much of an impact do you think it is on a on a on a batsman having the responsibility of being a keeper as well? So we've we've picked Sangakara in our team. We've decided that he's 
one of the four uh, middle-order batsmen for the 2000s. But he kept wicket a lot. He kept wicket in 48 test matches and only averaged 40. That's that's six less than Gilchrist in that period. So do we almost not appreciate quite how good Gilchrist was just as a pure batsman? Just in brackets before Ben gets going, Andy Flower, 20 games in this era, averaged 73 as a keeper batsman. Albeit small sample size, six hundreds, six hundreds from twenty games as a keeper bat. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's probably fair. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you you have um, you know, they say Johnny Bairstow now, where you get the impression that he part of the reason he desperately wants to keep wicket is it because it gives him like like you know he's an all rounder and he the keeping wicket gives him something else to to focus on and actually possibly feels he he takes the pressure off him as a batsman, but. Clearly, there's plenty of evidence to counter that, and so the Sangakara stats you mentioned. Um, yeah, I think it's it's also easy to forget, or you know, to sort of underplay that Gilchrist was a very very decent keeper. I mean, both you know, I think you know Healy as well in in his era was it took him a while to to become seriously high class, and and likewise Gilchrist. It was it's a big ask keeping to warn. Gee, I mean that's. That's got to be pretty tough, and there's no prisoners taken there if you drop um, drop many off Warney. So um, yeah, I, I mean he's just not even not even a contest, is it? As as you described, um, I would like to give Andy Flower an honourable mention there. Phil's mentioned the stats, but also you know he, he got a load of runs in India, basically just sort of batting on his own, basically playing, you know, in a different um, you know in a different class to pretty much all of his. Zimbabwe teammates, um, and curiously, by the end of this decade, um, he's England coach. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, there aren't too many other names around here. I, I guess McCullum and Doney were Gilchrist's progeny, if you like. You know that they, they they took on what Gilchrist had started. But again, it's quite telling just how inferior those two outstanding cricketers. Test match records are compared to Gilchrist. Gilchrist's numbers, when you look at them in the cold light of day, f- further emphasise what a what a once in a in a generation cricketer he was. Yeah, Cam- Cameron Akmal played one of the uh, the innings of the decade as a batsman. I would argue uh, against India when he came in at what was it nineteen for six, uh, scored one hundred and thirty not out, and they end up winning that test. Uh, but obviously, obviously, doesn't come close to Gilchrist. But if if we're doing honourable mentions, I guess. <laughs> Cameron maybe doesn't doesn't get close to wicketkeeper, I suppose, or as a batsman, but maybe should say his name anyway. I, I think he's, he's probably very happy with that mention if he's listening. <laughs> uh, just, just very quickly on Sagakara, I just looked up his record with and without the gloves. He averaged 74 without the gloves in this decade. So with that knowledge, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm quite pleased we picked him now. Um, so on to the bowlers, four bowlers. As I said at the start, you're allowed to pick as many or as few spinners as you wish. Ben, who is opening the bowling for you in your team? Um, I've gone with uh, Dale Stain and Glenn McGrath. Um, Glenn McGrath is obviously a shoe in loads of wickets, ridiculous average. Uh, we'll obviously just cut, bowl it all down on that exact spot. And uh, then the second one I've really struggled with because look at someone like Makai Antini, who's got a lot of wickets in the decade. Uh, but not not exactly a, a compelling average for me. Uh, and I think with this team, I mean, I don't know what John and Phil have gone with, but I've gone with two spinners. And if you've got a Jack Callis as well, you don't need another bowler who's going to be able to 
bowl all day for you. You can afford, you can afford a sort of strike bowler, which is why even though he only played sort of just over half the decade, uh, Dale Stain got the nod for me just with a uh, because he he started doing crazy things in India by that point. And uh, yeah, if, if 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 you were looking for a strike bowler from the list of bowlers who have considerable records in that decade, he's the one that really stands out for me. Uh, before coming to Phil and John, uh, you all picked Glenn McGraw, and I think it's worth just highlighting just quite how far ahead of the pack he was in the 2000s. So as, as we mentioned earlier, the, the 2000s were generally an era for batsmen. So many people averaged over over 50. Uh, McGraw with the ball in the 2000s took 297 wickets at 20 and an economy rate of 2.39. That is by some distance uh, the, the best record among seeing bowlers. John, who is opening the bowling with McGuire and your team? Well, I suppose it'd be a bit of a contest. I mean, I actually went with four seamers and a, and a spinner, which we'll come on to, and I'm probably a slightly daft thing, unnecessary thing to do, really. But um, I've actually, um, I, well, I've got Shoaib Akhtar in, in my team. Um, so obviously I wasn't, I wasn't prepared to have Peterson in the team for being difficult, but so, or maybe it's just, I, I'm allowing one Maverick in there and, and Shoeb's my guy. Um, 144 wickets at 22, 69 at 20 away from home or neutral venues, and 20 at 22 against Australia. Um, yeah, I mean, clearly not your, in, in, a, in, a, in a very competitive market, clearly not a bloke that you necessarily rely on, but just um, when, he was, when he was good, um, just very very good. Pace. Yeah, and uh, and St- Stain is a great call, and I, I I did toy with Stain, and and frankly, it's you know you, it's slightly contrarian, but it's just again, it's a bit like the, the Peterson thing to an extent that it's the sort of the split decade thing, and I think he, I can't remember exactly, but did he make it into the the 2010s team? I think he did, didn't he? So um, yeah, so I, yeah, I've gone with with Shoaib. Shoaib's record in that decade is is phenomenal. Uh, 11 five-wicket hauls in 33 test matches. I'd highly recommend going on YouTube to watch some of them as well. So in the space of about three weeks in 2002, he took two extraordinary six-fers, six-for-nothing, basically, against New Zealand. One in a test match, one in a one-dayer. The one in the test match was unbelievable. So in the first innings, Pakistan put on 600-plus. Indy got a triple hundred. Then Schweb comes on and takes six-for-11, six for I think, basically bowling 95-mile-per-hour Yorkers. I think he injured himself, so he didn't bowl in the second inning. So he bowled like eight overs, stick to 11, and that was it in the test match. Um, and, it, and the ODI spell was very very, sim- very similar. But there's not really ever been a bowler quite quite like Schwebb. And if we were picking a team um, with bowling back up in Callis, Schwebb is quite a persuasive option. Phil, you picked Schwebb as well. Yeah, and broadly for those reasons... Callis, and I've gone with two spinners, no prizes for guessing who. Callis provides the, you know, the security as and when show either doesn't turn up or breaks down after a, after a few overs or whatever. But show on his day, and there were plenty of them in this era, uh, yeah, a, a one-off cricketer, really. And yeah, look, if, if we are, if we're indulging ourselves on in this task, then you want, you want an outlier cricketer in there as well. You know, we, we could all pick a kind of fast, medium, stick it on the spot, a Sean Pollock type cricketer. You know, Pollock's record is outstanding across that decade, for example. But 
but show it brings that little bit of magic, I think. And if you imagine, you imagine being an opening batsman and having McGrath at one end and show Akhtar at the other. So yeah, show makes the cut. His record alongside Staines, and obviously Stain continued well into the next decade, but their record in and of this period is remarkably similar. They're just one test match difference between the two of them. They both took 11 fifers, and their strike rate is also very similar, although Shoeb's is better by a, by a nose. Shoeb's is under 40, which is phenomenal, really, for a quick bowler, although Staines is pretty much on the 40 nose as well, 40 mark as well. So you could you can argue the toss between the two of them. I, w- I would say that Ben's... Ben's suggestion of Stain makes sense because you would imagine Stain would deliver day after day after day in a way that Shoaib maybe wouldn't. But look, let's let's allow ourselves a little bit of magic in here. Let, let, let's let's get Shoaib in there. Uh, two 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 to one anyway. John and me both picked him, so let's let's have Shoaib in there at number nine. Well, if I could just <laughs> on Shoaib, I mean, I was very close picking him as well. I can't really believe that I'm arguing against him because I've I've obviously seen the, the YouTube spells and you can see the numbers but I think him more than probably any other cricketer up for selection here that does him a disservice in two ways because obviously you're, you're right if you're picking a team of the decade based on their absolute peak show up gets in no question but I think it's it's really hard to ignore like the, picking someone in this team is also sort of a, a marker of how influential they were on the decade of how many sort of Games on for their side of, of what what they meant to their side and and, and show up with or with the you know the suspensions the as you say that the, the the games didn't turn up for the the injury problems I think I think he missed more than half the tests that Pakistan played during his career and for me that if if you're not playing more than half the games your team are playing that that means you can't have had that big an influence and so it's easy to look back and see the sort of the, the clips of these absolutely ridiculous spells and. But that, that that that's why for me that Stain edged him out because, uh, yeah, I, I think Stain had more influence on South Africa in this decade than, or more positive influence than Sherb did on on Pakistan. If that makes sense, that that does make sense, and it's very well argued point, um, quite persuasive as well. Maybe the slight counterpoint to that is that Sherb was bowling on some pretty dead tracks quite a lot of the time when he was playing, and, and whereas Stain maybe benefited from a little bit of bit more juice in the in the atmosphere and a bit more juice on those South African pitches. But I can understand your point. It is definitely a mark against Shoaib that um, through design and accident and personality, he didn't get on the field as much as he probably should have done across that period. So I can understand that. That is a good point. John? Well, yeah, I mean, it's Ben's sort of slightly terrifying sort of logic. It's sort of Andy Flower style kind of cold, you know, Bloodless logic, um, but I, I, which is disappointing to hear in a such a, a young man. But anyway, um, I'm sticking with Shoaib. I mean, I just have to throw it as a complete aside, and and this doesn't actually necessarily um, gild Shoaib's lily necessarily. But he he was involved in one of the most amazing passages of play that I've ever witnessed live, which was in in 2002. So around the time, yeah, as you're saying, that we sort of he was dominant and he and it was Australia were playing um in well they played in Colombo and then they played in in Sharjah um because no one was touring Pakistan at the time and Shoaib had taken a load in Colombo 
Uh, and then in Sharjah, where actually Pakistan ended up being bowled out twice for 50-odd, um, Shoaib bowled an over to Hayden, which probably lasted about nine balls because Hayden kept pulling away. Uh, I mean, basically, Shoaib hit Hayden on the helmet, as I recall, and then probably every other ball, Hayden would pull away just as Shoaib had arrived at the crease. Bear in mind, it's 50 degrees, literally 50 degrees, and Shoaib, I mean, it was just, it was utterly compelling and it's still etched in, in my mind's eye because clearly Shoaib, who's tearing in anyway, is suddenly getting more enraged with each moment of this over. And Hayden, you know, it's just, it's, oh, it was, it was extraordinary. Unfortunately, you know, Hayden came out on top, but it was just the most compelling thing that that I've seen. He's sticking to it, Ben. I'm afraid your 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 logic and forensic analysis is going to have to do one. I think we're keeping with Shawib. I like it. I like it. But stand by our beds there on that one, John. That's fine. It'll, it'll make us quite popular on 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 Twitter, where so, somehow being anti Shawib is the worst thing you can be at the moment. So, uh, okay. So we've got two seamers. John, you argued uh, for the selection of three. Are you standing by that? Um, well, can I say that I'm standing by the the bloke that I've selected, although the logic of selecting four seamers in this type of team, I realise, is 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 hard to stand up, really. But I picked Antini, um, 380 wickets at 28. Um, you know, I think it, just the longevity, again, as a sort of, I just think he's an amazing pioneering individual and, and a damn good bowler as well, um, who, again, had huge huge effect on on his side and was was part of that emerging uh very high class south african side but obviously his influence goes way beyond um just what he did on the field so i i, I picked antini um but you know clearly uh you know, as i say I, do i need four seamers in my team though yeah well i didn't you didn't ask for a 12th man uh Yes, but I would have I would have gone with Antini as my twelfth man. Actually, um, I was a bit surprised by how superior his wicket tally is to all other bowlers. It's probably worth just mentioning as well between McGrath and Antini, Antini being first with three hundred and eighty wickets is Brett Lee. Uh, but Brett Lee, of course, always went for a few at the same time. But Brett Lee took over three hundred wickets from seventy five games, and so they make the top three: Antini, Lee, and McGrath. But Antini is way out there, really. 18 fifers, four 10-wicket hauls in this era, one of which, of course, was at Lords in that in that series. Um, so, yeah, in my 12, I had Antini, uh, but he didn't quite make my 11. John Pollock, who hasn't really had much of a mention so far, but he's he's fourth on that list of wicket-takers, and his his, uh, his average is almost four runs uh, uh, per wicket better than Antini's. You've got to also add that he averaged 32 with the bat in this decade with, with 200s which is uh, not insignificant. I mean, he probably suffers a bit from the same thing as, as, as Jacques Callis, but if you're, if you're picking your best 11 Chris of the decade, Test Chris of the decade, he'd feature quite highly on that, I imagine. It's an interesting point that you make, and it, these stats are quite, are quite uh, tantalising, really, because Pollock and Antini played in the same cricket team for a long, long time across this decade. Um, and yet... And Pollock, you would kind of probably say, is the more complete bowler of the two of them. And yet it's a good little illustration of the differences of style because Pollock only took six five-foot 
across 70 games, whereas Antini took 18, albeit across 97 games. It was just goes to show Pollock, Pollock would have just turned up day after day after day to take two for here, three for there, four for there. Whereas Antini, a bit more, a bit more nick, a little bit more, uh, you know, I guess incisive, I suppose. And, and he would have had more days, more days out than Pollock, but Pollock would have never, ever let you down. And there's a few bowlers like that in that list. You know, Matthew Hoggard, bless him, he comes in at number five. In terms of the wicket takers, he comes in at number five again, but only seven fifers. There'll be a hell of a lot of threefers and fourfers. And this is, this is what, separates fast bowlers you know they have different requirements they do different jobs at different times just 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 while we're going down the list Chaminda Vass with a averaging under 30 bowling half his tests in in Sri Lanka is is remarkable as well yeah definitely um continuing our theme of um discussing who the closest Englishman was to consideration I mean until Phil's mention of Hoggard there not a single Englishman uh was picked do you think Peak Harmison if he Carried uh, his two thousand four five peak on for two or three years longer. He'd be in consideration. Well, I mean, if you look at those two years, he was the best fast bowler in the world. Uh, but with Big Steve, there was a lot of stuff going on after that as well. And you know, from Brisbane, November the twenty third, two thousand and six onwards, it was a struggle for him. And there's, and while he had good moments, he had a good moment against Pakistan at Old Trafford and came back nicely in 09 for his swan song in that Ashes series at home. But the truth of it is that after that golden two years, you know, he, he fell away a little bit. He was a he was a daisy cricketer. Some days he did, some days he didn't. And, and that was the story of Harmison's, Harmison's career, really. Um, and then on to, on to the spinners. Phil, it's, it's obvious, isn't it? Wall and Murley. Yeah, I'm not really, really sure what, to, what there is to discuss here. Spied by so far... Uh, Murley was was the leading wicket taker in, in that decade, almost by almost by two hundred wickets. I think one hundred eighty five more wickets than anyone else in that decade. Forty nine five wicket hauls in one hundred fifty four innings. I know he bowled quite a lot, but still, that is a truly phenomenal record. Uh, an average of twenty one, and Wall of course three hundred fifty seven wickets at, at twenty five. Well, I didn't pick Shane Warne. Put it that way, John. Why 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 didn't you pick um, Shane Warne? Well, it- if truth be known, it's probably because in my head I'm thinking I'm picking four seamers and a spinner in a very sort of Duncan Fletcher kind of way. Um, and, and therefore I found myself choosing between Murali and Warren. And as you rightly say, there isn't, I mean, you, it's kind of an impossible choice other than Murali's um, amount of wickets. What, you know, Warren actually, Warren's strike rate away from home is 44, Murali's is 56. That's the sort of, that's the only point where you go, in, from a numerical point of view, where you think that's uh, that's actually in Warren's favour, I just yeah, I mean, I th- I, to me, Morley was a given um, because just of yeah, the influence of, of uh, just just brilliance. I mean, what you know, but but it sounds like I'm I've got a problem with Shane Warren, which I haven't. But you know, um, yeah, I mean, you know, picking them both seems actually you know perfectly obvious given the uh, um, given given uh, the uh, the nature of the team we're picking. Um, yeah, Murali. Yeah, Murali. Obviously, in my side, the, the numbers um, are almost Bradmanesque. There's Murali, and then there's the rest. Uh, Fourteen, as you say, forty-nine five wicket hauls, and uh, the next best from a spinner is twenty-three with, from Harbajan, with Warren in at twenty-one and Kumble in at twenty. Just uh, in brackets on Murali, and this is absolutely not 
a reflection of my own opinion here. Um, in 2006, I think, uh, Richie Benno brought out a video or a DVD, as it would have been at the time. And I, I interviewed him about this. And uh, he picked his all-time Test 11. And he went through them all. Sidney Barnes made the cut. Dennis Lilly opened the bowling with Sidney Barnes, etc., etc. Came down to the spinners. And he had honourable mentions for any number of, of top-class wrist and finger spinners. Um, and he didn't mention Morley once. Didn't even mention him. And... Uh, as I say, this is not reflection of, of where I stand on it at all. But if we were having this conversation in the in the bars of Australia uh, and the cricket clubs of Australia, there'd be quite a few people who would just be refusing to even countenance the notion of Morley getting into your team. Uh, that sadly is what he always had to carry around with him, even among the the real the grandees of the game in certain parts of the world. They still look at Morley and put that asterisk next to his name. Anyway, just as an aside, as I say. Yeah, I, th I think picking this team would be quite interesting if you didn't have Jack Callis to balance it out. And I think that's, I mean, that, that sort of is a good argument in his inclusion because it balances the team, but also shows what he would have done for South Africa for so long, uh, was give them that balance and that kind of, when you've got him in the 11, it makes picking the rest of the team so much easier. Because if you don't have a good third seamer in your top six, do you end up going with two spinners or do you pick three seamers? I think that's then... Ntini against Warren becomes a very interesting debate, but luckily we do have Callis, which I think makes this much easier. You know, I did write Flintoff's name down, actually. Clearly, you know, just didn't probably do it for long enough. But actually, again, when you're looking at careers with a bit of perspective and in the context of, or, you know, comparing against peers, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty impressive um, effort really. Callis is clearly way out in front, but um, you know when you asked about English England players who were close to the team, um, you know I actually wrote Flintoff's name down, and I didn't, uh, and I wrote KP's name down, and, and and no one else. I didn't. I wasn't considering any pace bowlers, for example. The the thing that um, the the problem with my team is is the long tail really, which may or may not matter, but. Um, so you know that I guess is a is where someone like Pollock or, or maybe Warren certainly adds something at number eight because at the moment I've got kind of Antini batting at eight. I mean I've basically got four number elevens, um, which is not ideal. I don't, I don't think many people are getting through our top seven. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've uh, we've set it on eleven. Uh, so that eleven is Graham Smith, who's our captain, Virendra Sehwag, Royal Dravid, Ricky Ponting, Jack Hallis, Kumar Sangakara. Adam Gilchrist, Shane Warne, Shreve Akhtar, Matar Muralitharan and Glenn McGraw. Happy with that, Japs? That'll do me. It's a good team. And Smith, captain? Uh, unless anyone disagrees, I thought you guys all separately mentioned that Smith's captaincy credentials helped his uh, inclusion in the side at the top. Yeah, no, yeah. no, uh, no objections. Excellent. <laughs> so, Ben. We're not picking this team in isolation. We're This is part of our whole 2000s decade in review series. Do you want to talk about that now? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we did it for, for the 2010s, uh, the decade just gone, and people seem to enjoy it. So we figured with a bit of time on our hands, we'd, uh, we, we'd go back through the years. So over the next three weeks or so, we're going to be picking the best test innings, test spells, ODI, T20, women's. The T20 will be helped out by 
by Crickviz. And then also we're going to get a bit country specific this time around as well. So on a, on a podcast over the next couple of weeks, we've got um, we're picking the England best and ODI team of the decade, which will be <laughs> fun when you're, when you're, you know, debating between spinners and bowling averages of 40 and that sort of thing. Uh, and we'll also be picking some, uh, some India teams with our, with our friends at, at Wiz and India. Uh, so yeah, wizen.com for, for all of that. So, uh, John, Phil, Ben, thank you so much for joining me today. That was good fun. Uh, we've picked a very, very good team. This has been the Wizen Cricket Weekly podcast. If you enjoy the show, please tell your friends and if you're feeling especially kind today, why not leave us a five-star review of the podcast app. Cheers. Podcast Network.